Is there a God? And if so, can this God be known? These are two of the most fundamental questions of every human heart. I think the answer to both of those questions can be succinctly found in Psalm 19. Today we continue our seven-part sermon series entitled The Making of a Disciple. Last week we concluded that a disciple is one who has explicit faith in Jesus Christ. Today I want to contend that the disciple is one who encounters the living God through his living word. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 14. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, more than much gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Heavenly Father, this day I ask for you to help me to preach. Help me to preach. Help me to preach. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. You may be seated. It was C.S. Lewis who said of our passage that this psalm is one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. It can nicely be divided into three parts. The revelation of God in his world, verses 1 to 6. The revelation of God in his word, verses 7 to 11. The revelation of God in his worshiper, verses 12 to 14. Another way for me to say the same thing is this. That if you want to encounter God, according to this psalmist, all you have to do, number one, is look up to the heavens. Number two, look down into his sacred word. And number three, look within your human heart. First, Look up to the heavens. 
It was Warren Wiersbe who said that creation is God's wordless book. David simply says it this way, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. In other words, if you want to know, does God exist? According to this psalmist, all you got to do is go outside and look up. Because if you look up, you'll see that the heavens declare the vast glory of God. Theologians call this the general revelation of the Lord. It is God who has etched his signature upon the entire cosmos. For as you look up, you'll find the sublime signature of God on everything. Everything declares the glory of God. This uh, general revelation is abundant and it is continuous. When I say it is continuous, the psalmist says that day after day, night after night, the testimony never stops. Day after day, night after night. For the stars never stop shining. The waves never stop breaking against the shore. And the seasons never stop coming in their normal cycle of winter, spring, summer, and fall. Everything in creation bellows and beckons to the glory of God. And it is continuous. It is also abundant. For the psalmist says that they pour forth speech. That, that word pour forth it means the imagery of a gushing fountain. That everywhere you look, there is so much evidence to the reality of God. That everywhere you look, there is so much burden to the reality of the Lord that it is stamped upon everything that you see. Just stop and consider the fine-tuning of the universe. It bears witness and gives evidence to the reality of God. For we live on planet Earth. One of eight planets in our solar system. I know that many of you, like me, you grew up learning there were nine planets in our solar system. But in 2006, poor Pluto got demoted just to dwarf planet status. Now there are only eight planets. But regardless, Earth is the third rock from the sun. And if you stop and consider the fine-tuning of the universe, you have to conclude that if the earth were just some few miles closer to the sun, we would burn up. And if the earth were just a few miles further from the sun, we would freeze. We are strategically, intentionally planted right where we are as the third rock from the sun. Our earth is tilted approximately 23 degrees on its axis, which ensures the regular cycle of the four seasons. The earth has one moon and that moon is large enough to control every wave of every ocean. The atmosphere is made with such precision that if it was altered any bit to the left or the right, that atmosphere would not be able to sustain life here on planet earth. Yes, my friends, if you begin to think about the fine tuning of the universe, you have to conclude that this earth is placed here on purpose and for a purpose. Our solar system is in the galaxy called the Milky Way. The scientific community tells us there are 100 billion planets in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is one of 100 billion other galaxies in our universe. Our universe touts in excess of 700 million trillion planets. And the more the scientific community discovers, the more they have to conclude 
That of all the 700 million trillion planets that make up our universe, there is no other planet like planet Earth. No other planet that can house and hold uh, life as we know it. No other planet like planet Earth. That doesn't mean we're a divine accident. That means that we are made by cosmic design. We are here on purpose and for a purpose. For the general revelation of God. It bellows, it it speaks. For creation is the wordless speech of God. And in in creation, we find that this general revelation of the Lord is constant, continuous. It is abundant. David is the author of our lyric. And as he sits back, he simply watches that one big star, the sun in the sky. And he watches it every day as it rises in the east and sets in the west. Every day without fail. It runs its circuit. And David says that that sun runs its circuit with precision, runs it with excitement, runs it with energy. There is purpose in the step of the sun. Because it runs like a bridegroom coming out of his pavilion on his wedding day. For a bridegroom, as he's, as he's approaching the wedding day in, in, in antiquity, he would be brought out of his pavilion. He would be taken with friends. They would go and get his bride. And no bridegroom ever came out like Eeyore. This is just another day. No, every bridegroom came out and said, this is my day. This is the day of my wedding day. I'm going to go with purpose in my steps. I'm going to go and I'm going to get my bride. David says, like a bridegroom, he comes out of his pavilion and like a runner who fires off the starting block with confidence in every stride, with purpose in every step. For no runner runs a race aimlessly, but runs that race that is set out before the runner for victory. And David says, that's what the sun is like. For the sun races across the sky, not aimlessly, On purpose, it it races across the sky. And even as you see the sun rising in the east and setting in the west and watching its circuit and its course, you have to conclude there is a great God. David says that nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. Another way to poetically say that is without the sun, we're done. I mean, all of us need the sun. If, if we did not have the sun, then we could not exist. For if there was no sun, there'd be no photosynthesis. If there was no photosynthesis, there'd be no plants. If there were no plants, there'd be no animals that would eat the plants. If there are no animals that eat the plants, there'd be no other animals that eat the animals that eat the plants. If there are no other animals that eat the animals that eat the plants, there'd be no human life because you and I cannot exist without plants and animals. Everything needs the sun and God placed it here on purpose and for a purpose. I think that the Apostle Paul has this passage in mind when he comes to Romans chapter 1, when he says that no man is without excuse. For since the very foundation of the world, since creation itself, God has been demonstrating his qualities of his power and his existence through the things that have been made so that no one is without excuse. No one can go outside and say there is no God. No one can say that God does not exist The psalmist just simply says, look up to the heavens, for the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, our doctrine of creation empties nature of any potential deity. Say, pastor, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is simply this. We do not worship the sun 
the earth or the moon. We don't worship creation, we worship the creator of creation. Because in human history, there have been a lot of individuals, a lot of civilizations, a lot of groups, and they worship the sun, or they worship the moon, or they worship the trees, or they worship the wind. We don't worship the created order, we worship the God of the created order. So our doctrine of creation says there is a creator. He has made everything. He has stamped his indelible impression upon all things seen and unseen, visible and invisible. Is there a God? Yes, there is a God. All you have to do is look up to the heavens. But can this God be known? Can this God, who made everything seen and unseen, can he be known? It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, it is the wisest of individuals who will read the world book and the word book as if it was two volumes of the same work, both of them written by my Father in heaven. I understand that there are some people that question, can this God really be known? Like you, I've had conversations with individuals that claim to be an atheist or claim to be agnostic. An atheist is one who says there is no God. An agnostic claims that, yes, there probably is a God, but that God cannot be known. And whenever I've engaged anybody in conversation that claims to be an atheist or agnostic, I always at some point get to this question. The question is this, if you were to believe in Jesus Christ, what would it take? Just hypothetically, let's just engage in conversation. If you were to believe in Jesus Christ, what do you think it would take? What would it require to make you, to cause you to believe in Jesus the Christ? And every person to a person answers it the same way. Every person who claims to be atheist or agnostic says to me, well, if God appeared in some supernatural way, then I would believe. If God spoke to me, I would believe. If God gave me a sign, I would believe. If God proved to me that he was real, then I would believe. Every person who claims to be atheist and agnostic, who claims to be extremely logical, says the way they would come to faith and belief in Jesus Christ is by some supra-logical way, some supernatural way. And when I think of that, I am always reminded of Peter's testimony in 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter is reporting and uh, recalling that great moment when he was allowed to go on the mountain of transfiguration. He was there with James and John. They went up that sacred mountain and they saw Jesus transfigured in their sight, that the thin veil of the humanity of Jesus was lifted so that the raw radiant divinity of Jesus could shine through. And in that moment, they saw Jesus in a supernatural, spectacular way. And then the voice of God spoke. It was unmistakable. It was undeniable. He said, this is my beloved son whom I love. And when Peter recounts this in 2 Peter chapter 1, when he recounts this, he says, I did not come to faith because of the visions or voice. I did not come to faith because of this mountain of transfiguration experience or even because of the voice of God. I came to faith. My faith is built on the word of the prophets. He says, I came to faith because of the prophets more certain word. In other words, what he's saying is I came to faith because of the written word of God that's been handed down from generation to generation. 
If nature is the general revelation of God, then the scripture is the specific revelation of God. Peter is saying that the mountain of transfiguration experience, that's great. But the written word of God is greater. Friend, if God were to appear to me, that would be great. But the fact that he has given me his word, that's even greater. People have asked me numerous times, Pastor, have you ever heard God speak? And my answer is yes, all the time. Every time I open my Bible, every time I open my Bible, I hear the word of God. Every time. It would be great if God gave me a vision. It would be great if I had a mountain of transfiguration experience. That would be great. But it would pale in comparison to the gift that God has given me and has given you in the very written word of God without any mixture of error. This is the perfect, unadulterated, written word of God. And he's handed it down from one generation to the next. And because you have the capacity to engage this word, this is a gift that God has given you. And through this word, we have the specific revelation of God. It needs to be stated in the first six verses of our passage that the name of God is mentioned only once. It is the general term for God. It is the word that's abbreviated El, short for Elohim. But when you and I get to chapter 19, verses 7 to 11 of our passage, the word for God, which is the personal name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, is mentioned seven times. In this section, David says that God has revealed himself personally, salvifically, covenantally through his name. His name, which was given to Moses through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. Yahweh, I am the one who always has been, is, and will be. I am the one true God of the universe. It was the name that cannot even be uttered or spoken. It was Yahweh. It was Jehovah. And on seven occasions, in verses 7 to 11, it is this personal, covenantal, salvific name that is revealed in the very word of God. He gives six poetic parallel statements that describe God's word and the effect of God's word in your life. Allow me this morning just to highlight three of them. One that comes in verse seven, one that comes in verse eight, one that comes in verse nine. The psalmist says in verse seven that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That phrase, law of the Lord, really is Torah. It means all the instructions of God, all the instructions that God has given, instructions that ought to be obeyed, all the instructions of God, all the Torah of God is perfect. It means flawless. It means complete. And the effect of that perfect, complete Torah of God is the reviving of a soul. That word reviving can also be translated converting. The converting of the soul. That the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Oftentimes we speak of reading God's word. I share with you the desire that every time we stand to preach and worship the Lord that the house be full. The people traffic the website of our church and go and watch the sermons or uh, download the sermons on podcast. And let me tell you, the reason I say all of that is not because this preacher's on some ego trip. No, the reason I say that is because I am convinced that the reading and preaching and teaching and explaining of God's word has the potential 
possible power to convert the soul. So the more the people hear it, the more opportunity they have for the Spirit of God to awaken within them a desire for the Lord. And so it's through that preaching of God's Word, through the study of God's Word, through the reading of God's Word, that our souls are converted both now and forevermore. In verse 8, the psalmist says, The precepts of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. Precept, that's a word that means the moral instruction. It's instruction, it's commands that have a practical daily application to them. That the precepts of the Lord, the commands, the instructions of the Lord are morally right. To say that they're right, it's, it's not that they're right from left or right from wrong, but they are morally right. They are ethically right. That they are straight, not crooked. For there's nothing shady in God, nothing shady or crooked in him. He is holy, he is right, he is pure, and so his word is holy, right, and pure. The precepts of the Lord are right. They bring joy to the heart. Forever a person reads the word and allows the word to read them, there is joy, a joy that nothing can take away, a joy that the world cannot take away, a joy that the, the, the devil cannot take away. It is an everlasting joy. It is a joy that ever grows in us. You show me a disciple who encounters a living God through the living word, I'll show you somebody who has a joy-filled demeanor, a joy-filled life. In verse nine, there's a very interesting statement for the word of God. It says that the word is the fear of the Lord. For the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Fear of the Lord. Not one of us would think that the Bible is the fear of the Lord. We, we wouldn't describe it that way, would we? Not, not many of us, if not any of us, would describe the word as the fear of the Lord. And yet, when we read the word, the response is fear, adoration, reverence, respect, and worship. This is what calls Warren Wearsby to write in his commentary on Psalm 19 that one of the marks of a disciple of the Lord, one of the, one of the marks of somebody who truly uh, is, is a disciple of Christ is that that individual has not a big head but a burning heart. Because we do not study God's word just to get a big head. As we study God's word, our hearts are constantly pricked. As we study God's word, our hearts are constantly burning. It's reminiscent of the conversation that the two individuals had on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? There's something about opening the scripture that sparks a fire that's shut up in our bones. It sparks a fire that's inside of us. The goal of discipleship is not to get a big head. The goal of discipleship is to have a burning heart. The goal the goal of discipleship is not to stuff our minds with biblical facts. The goal of discipleship is to stuff our lives with the biblical Jesus. And in that process, as he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, opens the word to us, there is yearning, there is learning, there is burning that goes on inside of us. The psalmist says that, that this fear of the Lord is pure. It endures forever. The word of man is a puff of hot air. It's pronounced and then vanishes. That's, that's your words. That's my words. The words of man, just a puff of hot air. But the word of the Lord is enduring forever. 
For Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. For the word of Christ will endure forever. The psalmist David gets down to the end of that second section down in verses 10 and 11. He says, listen, when I think about the word, when I think about the gift of God's written word that has been given to me, it is better than money or honey. It is better than money, the precious gold, the most precious of gold. It is better than honey, sweeter than honey, straight from the comb. It is better than money. It is better than honey. What he's saying is, this is my highest appetite. Because I crave this more than I crave money. I crave this more than I crave food. Let me ask you, because it begs the question. Is your hunger for the holy things of God your highest appetite? Is your hunger for the holy things of God your highest appetite? Do you feast by faith on the succulent, sufficient scripture of God? Do you feast on it by faith? Do you devour it? For the Lord said to Ezekiel, eat this scroll. And I wonder how many of us devour it and digest it. Is this your highest appetite? Oh, you have a lot of appetites. I do too. For we desire significance. We desire wealth, fame, popularity, prestige. We desire a promotion. Nothing wrong with that. We desire food. We, we desire the best of food. We desire the sweetest of food. Nothing wrong with that. We desire shopping. We desire sex. We desire sports. Nothing wrong with that. So long as in the parameters of God's permission. Nothing wrong with desiring these things and having these appetites in your life. But my friend, what is the highest appetite? What is the highest appetite? What is the one thing that you reach for more than anything else? David says that the word of God, that's my honey. And the word of God, that's my money. In fact, the word of God is greater than honey or money because the word of God is more precious than gold and it's sweeter than even honey straight from the comb. As I was preparing for this sermon this week, I came across a lot of polls, a lot of statistics. And I came to this conclusion, how we treat the word of God reveals how we treat the God of the word. How we treat the word of God reveals how we treat the God of the word. So numerous studies reported the same thing. That 81% of churchgoers do not read their Bibles. 81% of churchgoers in America do not read their Bibles on a regular basis. They define regular basis as four to five times a week. Eight out of 10 churchgoers don't read the word of God. That tells me that 19%, 20% read it on a regular basis. And sometimes I even question the validity of that because I know churchgoers like you know churchgoers. And when we're posed with a poll, oftentimes we're tempted to lie. So I wonder, even if it's as high as 19% of people who read their Bible on a regular basis, yet it's not that we don't have the Bible because all these studies show that every American household on average has 4.4 Bibles. 57% of Americans, this is Americans at large, 57% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 28 reported that they have read the Bible less than three times last year year 18 to 28 less than three times last year of all the church going teenagers that are in a 
in our pews, in our seats in America today, 3% of teenagers say they read the Bible on a regular basis. 3% of our teenagers who are coming to church, 3% of them say that they are reading their Bible four to five times a week. Now we can't get really mad at our teenagers because mom and dad, we're not doing a whole lot better. 3% of our teenagers and 19% of other uh, churchgoers, that's a, that's a mere uh, one, out of, one, one out of five adults that are reading their scriptures on a regular basis four to five times a week. And I ask myself the question, I, I, I wonder why. Why is this neglected in our life? If, if the reading and the understanding, the study, the explaining, if, if the reading of the word of God is one of the greatest tools in disciple making, then one of the greatest tactics used by the devil is to keep us from reading our Bible. Would you agree with that? If one of the greatest tools in disciple making is devouring the scroll, eating the text and, and simmering on it and allow it to read us. If reading of the Bible is one of God's greatest tools to make disciples, one of the devil's greatest tactics is to keep us from reading the Bible. My question is why? Why are we kept from reading the Bible? I guess we could give a whole laundry list of excuses. It's hard to understand. We don't have time. We're so busy, maybe if we're really honest, some may even think we don't necessarily need it all that much. Just like a little dab will do you, a little bit of divinity will do you. So all you need is just a little bit. As long as I get it once a week from my pastor, that's all that I need. We could give a whole laundry list of reasons of why people don't read the text and don't allow the text to read them. But let me just summarize it in this way. I'll borrow the words of John Bunyan. John Bunyan said that this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. The reason we don't read the book is because of sin. You can call it whatever you want to. But the reason we are kept from this book is because of sin. So is there a God? Yes. Has he made himself known? Absolutely. Made himself known perfectly through his written word, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens when somebody like you or somebody like, like me encounters the living God through his living word. Number three, look within the heart. What does David say beginning in verse 12? Who can discern his errors? Who can understand his errors? When he encountered God, the living God through the living word, when he encountered God, he was confronted by his sin. And he asked the question, who can understand sin? Who can understand an individual's sin? Can you discern your sin? Can you understand why you sin? Do you know why you have repetitive sin in your life? Do you fathom and grasp the complexity of your sin? Do you understand the total depravity of your humanity? Can you discern and figure out and understand your sin? Who can discern sin? That's what David's asking. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of times when I ask myself, why did I just do that? I do something in disobedience and I ask myself in retrospect, why did I just do that? I can't figure it out. I know better, I tell myself. I know better than to do that. I know better than to think that. No better than to say that that way. I know better, but why do I do that? You ever do that? Thank you, thank you. All right, yeah, I think we all do that. And David is asking the question, who can discern? Who can understand? Who can figure out his sins? He gets to the point, he says, forgive me of my hidden faults. 
and my willful sin. Hidden fault is secret sin. Forgive me of my secret sin. Forgive me of my willful thoughts. David is like Isaiah. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord, the God Almighty. David is like Peter who encountered Christ and said, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. David is like the tax collector in the story of Jesus where the tax collector just says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. David is like Paul as he writes to his son of the ministry, Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying that demands full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Oh God, just please forgive me. Forgive me of my secret sin. Forgive me of my willful sin. Forgive me of those hidden sins that nobody knows about. David is saying, forgive me of those things that not even my spouse knows about. What about your hidden sins? I mean, it's the things that your wife doesn't know about. It's those thoughts, those deeds that your husband does not know about. It's those things that you have hidden from your parents. Your parents don't know about them. We can hide them from those that are closest to us, but we cannot hide them from God. What do you do with your hidden sin? Sometimes it's even hidden from ourselves. We may not even fully understand how sinful we are. What do we do with our hidden sin? What do we do with our willful sin? That's the sin we do on purpose. I meant to say that. (laughs) I meant to do that. Yes, I had evil intention when I did that. Yes, it's willful. It's voluntary. What do you do with that? Willful sin. David gets to the point where he says, may they not rule over me. I need you to do something with this God because you are the living God. I've encountered you in a living word and I need you to do something with my sin that's hidden and willful. I need you to do it because if, if, if it's left unchecked, that sin will rule over me. Because if we, are, if we are ruled by sin, we're servants of sin. If we're ruled by the Savior, we're servants of the Savior. I get to the end of the psalm and I ask myself, where is forgiveness found? And David answers that question for me. And it's at the very end of verse 14, the last verse of our sacred text. Forgiveness can only be found in the Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's the only place where we can find forgiveness. For when we encounter the living God through his living word, it slams us to our knees. And the only way that we can deal with our hidden sin and the only way we can deal with our willful sin is to fall at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and fall on our knees at the place where Jesus is. For he is our Lord. He is our rock and our redeemer. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's not just a phrase for a preacher to speak before he stands up to preach. That's a phrase for every disciple to speak before he or she starts a day. Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart be acceptable, be pleasing in your sight because you are my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. The hymn writer is exactly right. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed 
And his righteous alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friend, is there a God? Yes. Is he uh, one who has made himself known? Absolutely. What do you do when you encounter the living God through his living word? You understand your sinfulness and your need for that God in your life. And you fall on your face and you say, Lord, help me. Forgive me. Oh, Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. So this morning before you leave, I give you the opportunity to encounter the living God through his living word. Look up. You'll see his signature in the heavens. Look down in his word and you'll see the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ revealed. Look within and in your own human heart, you'll find the need to ask God to forgive you of your hidden sin and your willful sin. And the only place that we can be made right is through our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This morning, there's somebody who needs to come and confess sin to Christ. There's somebody who needs to come, fall on their face and say, Lord, forgive me for neglecting your word. There's somebody who needs to make some promises unto the Lord to say, Lord, I need to eat this scroll. The reason I am flailing and floundering in this existence is because I don't wield well the spirit of God that you've given me. It's a sword that I don't know how to handle. And Lord, I need for you to help me to carve out the right time so I can read your word on a regular basis. Oh, my friend, the altar ought to be full this morning as we bow before the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. And Lord, we do ask that you help us to encounter the living God through the living word. And when we do that, help us to come face to face with our sin and find the only forgiveness is in the Lord. So Jesus, we give you this invitation and please speak to us and speak through us and bring us to the point of repentance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.